I'd like to thank KTMS 990 and Montecito Bank and Trust for making Scam Squad possible. I'm Patty Teal. And I'm Deputy District Attorney Vicki Johnson. Scam Squad is up next. Sound off. One, two. Sound off. Three, four. One, two, three, four. Scam Squad. Welcome to Scam Squad. I'm your host, Patty Teal. I'm here, as usual, with Deputy District Attorney Vicki Johnson, and I know she has a special guest here today. Welcome, Vicki. Hi, thank you, Patty. And yes, I do have a special guest with us today. This is Melinda Green, who is the Chief Deputy Clerk Recorder for Santa Barbara County and somebody who works closely with our office. Now, Melinda, welcome. I'm so happy to have you with us today. You have a lot of important information to share, but let's start by telling us what you do in your position as Chief Deputy Clerk Recorder. I know you have a lot of jobs. I do. Amongst various administrative duties I have with the assessor and the registrar of voters, I help operate the Hall of Records. The Hall of Records maintains a community archive for official records having to do with real estate and vital records consisting of birth, death, and marriage. And we also issue marriage licenses and perform marriage ceremonies, file fictitious business names, file the notary oaths and bonds. We conduct so many services, but For purposes of today's conversation, we hold the records that establish chain of title for your real estate. I come from an audit and technology background, and I apply my skills in this environment to mitigate the risks of fraud and leverage technology for automation and data analysis. And as I mentioned before, this is obviously a very big job. You've only scratched the surface in this description. And as I did mention in the beginning, from time to time, you do contact our office, the district attorney's office, when you see a transaction that you think might be fraudulent. Can you give us an example of what that might look like? Yeah, we worked very closely with the DA and county council over the years, and we built a checklist of what we felt was ministerial and low risk for fraud. And so those records, we record those expeditiously. But when it falls outside of that template, then we escalate it and we send it to our county council. And county council is the one that actually refers it to the district attorney officially. But obviously, we are very proactive in providing evidence to the district attorney. So while they're running the investigation, they're asking us a lot of questions. So there's a lot of dialogue between counsel, the district attorney, and us to understand what's happening in the transaction and if this is potential fraud. So can you give us some specific examples of things that you have, situations that you've brought to the attention of the district attorney's office where you've had some suspicions that all was not right? Well, sometimes we'll see somebody bringing in an elderly folk that they don't seem to have capacity. And this perpetrator is basically taking over the conversation and they may be recording a real estate record or maybe they're coming in and trying to get a marriage license. But if we have some sense that this person lacks capacity, doesn't fully understand, or maybe they're in a duress situation, we're not going to record, we're not going to issue. We're definitely going to pool our resources with the many groups that we work with, whether it's adult protective services, district attorney, even FBI. If we feel like this somebody that's routinely doing this, sometimes we can track them doing this across other counties. So we have very good relationships with the different agencies that help protect elder abuse, and we coordinate often. 
Yes, and that's a very, very important function because you sometimes are on the front line of this. You are the person who is seeing the potential abuse, especially if this person is vulnerable, if they're older, if they're most of the time remaining in their home and they don't get out. You are the person that is going to intercede if you see something that looks pretty suspicious. You recently contacted our office about a document, or actually there were several documents that were being filed in your office, and these were called Memorandum or Exclusive Right to List and Sell Agreement. Can you tell us what this document is? We learned about this actually from some investigative media reports. Also, I heard that district attorneys across the country are starting to investigate this. So I started to do my own searching on the web and found a lot of people complaining about this in the consumer world on TikTok or what have you. And we saw that in our county, we're starting to receive this documents. And over the past year, we've recorded a couple Most of them we've actually rejected because they didn't meet recording requirements because most of these companies are outside of state and they're not aware of California recording rules. And so they're they're not too good at putting together the package. But the deal is basically the homeowners receiving some money up front. Usually it's around $1,000 or maybe $1,300. And they're agreeing to use this listing agent. And that's not so uncommon, but what alarmed us is in these deals, we're finding out that they're agreeing to this listing agent for 40 years. So I'm expecting to see maybe three to six months you agree to use some realtor, but not 40 years. And they're recording these agreements. And what we're also hearing is that cancellation to get out of the agreement is something like three and a half percent or thousands of dollars more than what they had received up front. So that is alarming to me. And when we were looking at who's been rejected and the type of person that seems to be using these agreements, it seems to be older people or people in financial distress. And so that kind of concerns us. So we forwarded that to council and we started to alert the different law enforcement agencies. And I spoke to many of my counterparts throughout the state that also do the recording. And it appears that these are coming in throughout the state of California and recorders are starting to become aware of it. Wow, it's very interesting. And the example that you gave me when you contacted our office was an older gentleman, and he, I think, was in some kind of financial distress around his property. And this company offered him $1,000 for this 40-year listing agreement, or I guess representation agreement. But to get out of this agreement, if he later on decided he didn't want these people representing him and he wanted to sell his property, he was going to have to pay around $8,000. Yeah, it doesn't seem reasonable to me. Yes, he did agree to it, but did he have capacity? Did he really understand how complicated the deal is and how it's being recorded and could be viewed as a lien? That's our concern is that these people that don't really understand are signing these deals and they're getting notarized. We're starting to get word out and talk to the local notaries and explain, hey, make sure people have capacity. You have to make sure that people are understanding the terms of their deal and capable of that. If they totally lack capacity, they can't sign. 
So, Melinda, what do you want people to be aware of when they make this kind of agreement? Well, I think one of the things that they could do is ask about the cancellation policy. That's clear. I think if there's some exorbitant penalty, you should be aware of that. That should wake you up. I think the term of the agreement, too, is very important. 40 years compared to what's typical of like three to six months. That's very alarming. I think one of the things that people should know that if they are being acknowledged by a notary, that should be an indication that this is probably going to record. And when people are recording at the official records, you know, hall of records, they're basically giving constructive notice. That means that everybody is looking at our official records as the chain of title and all of the potential liens or rights to real estate are recorded in our official records. It's important that if they see that notary acknowledgement, that is probably going to be recorded officially and it means that it could be a lien. And so people would need to talk to their legal advisor to really assess what that means. We can't provide that guidance. We're really just a bulletin board. We are not allowed to investigate the fraud. All we are doing is we're looking to see if it fits in the template and we record and we put it on the bulletin board. Just has to meet recording requirements, doesn't need to meet legal sufficiency. So if if there is some wrongdoing, somebody doesn't have the rights to record something, it's not going to be stopped at my point. We're technically supposed to record it expeditiously. But again, we created this framework where we create a template and if it falls in that template, I record it right away. But if it doesn't, I escalate it and we bring in the district attorney and counsel. And those are the people that investigate the fraud and we just provide evidence. From what you're saying, my understanding is by recording the document, this gives anybody notice who's going to deal with that property later on. So let's say the owner of the property kind of innocently wants to sell his property and wants to employ another realtor, maybe somebody that he knows. The other realtor is going to see this on the title to the property or something that's been recorded and will say, no, no, I'm sorry, I can't help you with this. The way I'm reading the agreement, it also binds the heirs to this property so that if the gentleman wills his property to his son or daughter, and then he passes away, they're still bound by this agreement, supposedly. Would that be? Potentially. I mean, we can't make any legal interpretations of what's happening in the agreement, but those are things that you would want to ask and understand the consequences. Yeah. So you really have to be careful and make sure that you completely understand any agreement before you sign it. And if you have to get legal advice, it's worthwhile to do that. Melinda, you had a recent case where an elderly victim was convinced to put title to her property into what we call a limited liability partnership, but the partnership did not include her. So tell us what you can about this case. And I know this case is currently being investigated, so you probably can't say too much, but you can sure give us the general outline about what people should be aware of in a situation like this. We heard about this really through people representing her as the victim. And we had seen the transaction. It seemed kind of suspicious, but it did kind of make it through the template system. It did get recorded. 
But in this case, we had heard that the woman had needed cash and she had a caregiver refer her to a private lender who drew up some mortgage agreement or line of credit that didn't get recorded with us. And the terms were so harsh. I guess they gave her $100,000 up front, but then she had to pay it back within a year. And obviously, she's in her 90s. She's strapped for cash. She has no income resources. She's property rich, but she has no cash. And so they convinced her because she couldn't pay back this loan to sign, which was acknowledged, a deed that quit claim from herself to an LLC in her name. So let me give you an example. Let's pretend her name was Jane Doe. The transaction as we saw it was Jane Doe to Jane Doe LLC. And the woman that brought it in was representing her as her attorney. Oh, we're just you know settling her affairs, getting everything ready. It's still her. But on further investigation, the owner of the LLC was not in fact the victim. It was the lender. So that alarmed us and also heard from the person that had reported the crime that there were similar crimes taking place in Los Angeles County. So we escalated this to counsel and gave her the transaction and our counsel referred it over to the district attorney. The district attorney started to look at the transaction, all the documents that go around the transaction. Unfortunately, in this case, the victim died. And our understanding from the newspaper is that it was deemed a homicide. So we are very concerned about this transaction in particular. It's still under investigation. You mentioned that this woman had gone through a private lender, which people do and quite legitimately. But do you have any advice for people who go to a private lender to do real estate transactions? I think it's risky. When you go through a regular lender, these lenders are FDIC insured. That's the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. They have a lot of regulations to follow. These people will also use a title company, and the title company is also very regulated. A lot of witnesses. When you're going through somebody that does some backroom deal and they may or may not record, you lose a lot of the protections that are built into the system. So you really have to trust these people. And unfortunately, I think a lot of these victims, they lack capacity to begin with. So they shouldn't even be getting in any agreement whatsoever without some sort of conservator or some person to assist and advocate on their behalf. So we always see that as a red flag when it's private lender and it's not title insured. That's already on our red flag list. So we take a second look at it, probably more so than other recorders. So what I'm hearing you say is that when you go to a private lender, they may not be following the procedures and the controls that are in place to protect our interests as consumers. Yeah, we just don't know. And we don't know if they're a regular or if they're just coming into the community for one transaction and then they're going to be gone and we can't find them again. We just don't know. So you definitely have to do your homework. Your home is your greatest asset and you have to do everything you can to protect it. And it does mean extra study. It could mean that you have to pay for some real estate law advice, somebody that's specialized in California specifically. So that's not easy, but I think it's an important step. And we always caution people and tell people, have you consulted your legal advisor? Because once you record this, you cannot undo it. 
you may have to go to court to remedy it. And we warn people, it's very important that you protect your chain of title. You don't want a cloud title. We can't provide any legal advice as recorders because we have such a ministerial duty, but it is important to guide them to make sure they're getting the right advice. Well, Melinda, that is a lot of very important and very good advice. I just want to thank you so much for the work that you do and the protections that your office put into place for the vulnerable members of our society. We so appreciate your work and we really appreciate you coming on the show. And Yes, we do. Thank you so much. No problem. That was great. Vicki, do we have any good news today? We do. I will share it right now. So Melinda said she wants to stay and hear the good news. She wants to stay and hear some good news. We we try and end our show, Melinda, with good news because sometimes the subject of our show is a little bit bad news, but here's the good news. We have talked about the grandparent scam recently and the fact that it just will not go away. This is one of those scams that will not die and people are still losing money to it. So here's the good news. And this is out of the Department of Justice for the Southern District of California. So here in our state where two defendants pled guilty to criminal conspiracy for targeting elderly victims in the grandparent scam. They swindled more than 70 victims out of more than $2 million, and they were running the grandparent scam almost exclusively. They they told the victims that their grandchildren were in legal trouble, that they had to pay money for bail or to cover medical expenses for a car accident victim, all the kinds of things that we have talked about that sort of suck people in and make them so frightened. And this was interesting. I've talked a little bit about sort of the new wrinkle we're seeing where people come in person to your home to collect the money. And that was one of the ways that the scammers in this particular situation did collect money. They would actually go in person and pick up money from the victim. Now, they also would accept money, how nice of them, by wire (laughs) transfer (laughs) or regular mail, but they would send a courier to the victim's house to collect the money. One of the defendants that pled guilty was operating as a money mule, and we've talked a little bit before about money mules. We've talked about how some people don't understand what it is that they are doing. They don't understand that they are transferring money for swindlers and crooks. They think they're doing a favor for a friend. Well, the reason this woman was able to be prosecuted is because she knew, they were able to prove that she knew that the money she was receiving constituted proceeds from the grandparent scam. So she was a knowing money mule and she was convicted along with a couple of other people. So there you have it. There's the good news. Not a money mule that was not duped in, but knew exactly what she was doing. Yeah, not an innocent money mule. No, that's good good news. Well, what a great show we had. Melinda, thank you again. And Vicki, look forward to talking to you next week. Okay, thanks so much, Patty. Bye-bye. Thank you.